just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This work is a parody of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Podcast. Mr. Carlin is not associated with this production, and any views or opinions presented in this podcast are solely those of Alex Berg and Jason Green. What you're about to hear is part three of Shadow of the Dragon. If you don't mind getting into a story in the middle of things, or simply don't think the first two parts were that interesting, then by all means go ahead and listen. But if you're like me and you like to start things at the beginning of things, then I recommend that you go back and check out the first two episodes. Either way, here is Shadow of the Dragon, part three. So long as I'm your king, it's history. Treason shall never go unpunished. The events. There's a brave man knocking at our door. The drama. Let's go kill them. The figures. When you play the game of thrones, you win. Will you die? It's hardcore Game of Thrones. Winter is coming. When I was a kid, probably just about eight or nine years old, I went to my first ever baseball game. It was the Los Angeles Dodgers playing for the National League pennant against Milwaukee. And I mean, even thinking about today, I still get chills. I mean, it was exciting as all heck to be in that stadium, feeling the roar of the crowd every time a batter got a hit, and also being able to feel the stakes of every pitch. I mean, whoever won that game was going to go to the World Series. As it so happened, the Los Angeles Dodgers wound up winning the game I was at and then went on to win the World Series that year. And Gosh, it was just, a, just an absolutely incredible feeling to have been there and to have been able to witness such an important event in person. It felt like you were watching history unfold, and for baseball fans, that's absolutely what's happening at those big, important games. Individual athletes have chances to become heroes, teams have the opportunity to become the stuff of legend, and as an audience member, you get to watch it all happen right in real time. Now, try to imagine a baseball game where the stakes were a little bit higher, if they weren't limited to sports, you know, if there were political ramifications. I mean, what if the coaches and players weren't just athletes, but some of the most important generals and military figures in the country? And where if the wrong team won, it could set the whole country on the path to war? If those were the stakes, imagine how much closer attention you'd pay every time somebody said there was a baseball game on. Imagine the roar of the crowd every time there was a strikeout or a home run. Imagine if a player might be executed because he didn't catch a pop fly or because he let a runner steal a base. It'd be a much bigger deal, wouldn't it? To call baseball the national pastime would be kind of an understatement. Heck, it'd be the understatement of the century. Now, that all sounds pretty outlandish, but it's not that far off from the place tournaments held in Westerosi society. Now, some tournaments weren't that big of a deal, you know, sort of like a mid-season game between two teams that nobody really follows or cares about that much. 
But every once in a while, something important would happen at one of these tournaments. Something that bumped it up from mere entertainment to being almost mythically important. It was rare, but it did happen. And the best example of this takes place in the year 281 AC, at what's now known as the Tourney at Harrenhal. The last time we saw Harrenhal was when the Hoare family was being burned to death in one of its towers by Aegon the Conqueror and his dragon Balerion the Black Dread. Since then, it's changed hands a whole bunch of times. I mean, people can't seem to hold on to it for very long, and for a lot of reasons. First, it was built to be, well, you know, kind of like the White House of the Riverlands. But now that title belongs to a castle called Riverrun, and that's where the overlords of the Riverlands, the Tullys, live. So in order to occupy Harrenhal, you've got to be a big deal, but not too big of a deal. And that ties into the second problem, which is that the place is huge. I mean, it's just massive. If you're living there, you've got to be powerful enough to afford it, because the upkeep alone costs a fortune. But not powerful enough to threaten someone like the Tullys. On top of that, there are rumors that the place is filled to the brim with ghosts. And piggybacking off of that, whenever a family does take up residence in Harrenhal, they end up having an unusual amount of bad luck. Which in turn makes people believe that the entire place is just cursed and better left in peace. You know, getting melted by dragon fire has a way of taking even a prime piece of real estate and making it, well, you know, not quite as desirable as it would be otherwise. But a great big castle is still one heck of a status symbol. And so there are always families that are willing to give Harrenhal a try. In 280 AC, that family is the Wents. And the head of house Went, one Walter Went, which, huh, there's a lot of W's there. But Walter Went decides one day that he's going to throw his daughter, whose name I don't have in front of me, but if I had to hazard a guess, it was probably Wendy or Wanda or whatever. But anyway, Walter decides that he's going to throw her the birthday party to end all birthday parties. He's going to host a grand tournament in her honor. And not only that, he's saying things like, like this is going to be the greatest tournament that Westeros has ever seen. Well, I don't know if it turned out to be the greatest. But you could make the argument that it certainly became the most important. You know when you're riding a roller coaster and there's that moment early on when you're slowly making your way to the top of the first hill and then there's that pause right before you go crashing down the other side? You know, there's that eerie silence when the clanking of the chain that was pulling your car up stops, but gravity hasn't taken over yet, so all you can do is wait for things to take their course? That's what this tournament is. It's the last gasp of normalcy for Westeros. It's the calm before the storm. Of course, at the time, nobody knew that. All anybody knew was that it was definitely going to be, at the very least, an incredible spectacle, and there's no way that they were going to miss it. Because keep in mind, for most of the people in Westeros, there just wasn't a heck of a lot to do for fun. There was no internet, no television, most of the population couldn't read, I mean, they didn't even have access to music. You know, instruments cost money, and learning to play them requires an education, and there's just, there's just no time for that when you've got a life expectancy of 30 and a farm to take care of. And that's why singers in Westeros are a traveling profession, because they're fulfilling a need that exists everywhere. The concept of recorded music, let alone something like an iPod or a Zune, it would blow these people's minds. I mean, we've gotten so used to having some kind of fun distraction on demand 24-7 that it's hard to imagine what life was like when entertainment was something that you might have a chance to experience just a few times a year. But that's what life was like for the vast majority of commoners in Westeros. So tournaments in general were a pretty big deal. 
And Wentz Tournament promised to be an even bigger deal than usual, the World Series of Tournaments. And not just because Went was talking a big game about how great it was going to be. There were some other unusual contributing factors at play. Aris Targaryen decides that he's going to attend this tournament. It's where he's going to induct Jamie Lannister into the Kingsguard. And inducting a new member of the Kingsguard is always a little bit of an affair, as it's a very prestigious position. You know, it's basically the king saying that you're one of the finest knights in the land, and that carries a kind of, uh, well, celebrity feels like, a, like an odd term to use, but really, that's what it is, you know. Play your Kingsguard cards right, and you're going to be someone that the small folk tell stories about, you know. Bards are going to write songs about your heroic deeds, and children are going to pretend to be you on the, well, you know, not the playground, but you get the idea. So being inducted into the Kingsguard is a big deal. And so from Eris's point of view, what better place to do it than at the biggest tournament the realm's ever seen? Which ties into his second reason for wanting to go. By this point, Eris hasn't left the Red Keep in four years. And in all that time, almost nobody outside of the court, and certainly nobody outside of King's Landing, had seen him in person. People are starting to notice. And even worse, they're starting to talk about it. Add in the fact that he's already got a reputation as a, well, you know, a torture-loving madman, and you've got a bit of a PR problem. Eris wants to change all that. He thinks that showing his face at this giant party will lift the spirits of the people. It'll help remind everyone that they used to love him, and hey, he's still the same guy, so they should just keep on loving him. Everyone can just relax now because the king is A-OK and the realm is in good hands. In theory, it's a pretty good idea. In practice, though, it turns out to be a disaster. Because by this point, you know, four years after Duskendale, Eris had entered full-on Howard Hughes mode. Here's Meister Garcia II again with a description of his, you know, Eris's appearance at Heron Hall. Quote, Whilst his attendance made the Heron Hall tourney even grander and more prestigious than it already was, drawing lords and knights from every corner of the realm, many of those who came were shocked and appalled when they saw what had become of their monarch. His long yellow fingernails, tangled beard, and ropes of unwashed matted hair made the extent of the king's madness plain to all. So right off the bat, Eris doesn't look like a king. He looks like a crazy old man, which in and of itself is pretty unnerving because at this point, he's only 36 years old. The madness wasn't just robbing him of his mind. It was robbing him of his youth, of his body. It was eating him alive. But that's not to say that the problems were only physical. Garcia goes on to describe Eris's state of mind, saying, quote, Nor was his behavior that of a sane man, for Eris could go from mirth to melancholy in the blink of an eye, and many of the accounts written of Harrenhal speak of his hysterical laughter, long silences, bouts of weeping, and sudden rages. End quote. That doesn't sound like a monarch that's capable of inspiring the love of a nation. That sounds like a damaged human being having a mental breakdown. I mean, just try to imagine what this would be like today. Or, you know, for the sake of avoiding any kind of controversy a few years from now. But let's say that in the not-too-distant future, we elect a president who's a complete recluse, never makes any public appearances, has his VP deliver the State of the Union address, just a guy who's completely cut off from the public eye. And then he makes his first public appearance during the Super Bowl halftime show, and he looks like he's been living on Skid Row. Not only that, but he's giggling, then crying, then screaming at his aides, and doesn't seem to understand why anybody might have a problem with that. How would you feel knowing that this was the most powerful guy in the world? Well, whether or not that filled you with confidence, it sure would make halftime pretty memorable, wouldn't it? Now, 
Another unusual thing about the tourney at Heron Hall, and if it seems like there's a lot of stuff about this tournament that makes it unique, well, that's just because there was. But another unusual thing is that it was offering some enormous purses. I mean, not actual purses. That's just what they called prize money for specific competitions. The point is, the prizes being offered, even for a big tournament, were just astronomical. More than double what Tywin had been offering at his tournament a couple of years earlier. And remember, financially speaking, Tywin Lannister's the Bill Gates of Westeros. Now, a lot of people didn't think this was that big of a deal. After all, if the point of the tournament was that Lord Went wanted to show off how big and important House Went was, well then of course he'd have huge prizes. But there are other people who point out that even if he wanted to offer purses that large, there's simply no way that he could afford it. The Wents were an important house, sure, but the amount of gold that they were offering would be tough for anyone to shoulder. Not to mention the enormous cost of hosting the tournament itself. I mean, you put those two things together, and it seems like way, way more than Walter Went could afford. At least, not by himself. Which is why some people think that he had help. More than help, even. There's a theory that someone approached Lord Went in secret that they asked him to be the public face of the tournament and then finance the entire thing for reasons that didn't have anything to do with the daughter's birthday. And who was this mysterious sponsor? Well, if you believe this theory put forward by some of the more, you know, conspiratorial meisters, and I happen to think that at the very least it's a possibility that should be considered, but supposedly the mystery sponsor was none other than Rhaegar Targaryen. And if that's true, the obvious question is why? Why would he want to do that? And keep in mind, this is still just a theory, but the thinking is that ever since Duskendale, the relationship between Rhaegar and his father had been falling apart. I mean, perhaps that isn't too surprising, as at this point you'd be hard-pressed to find a relationship in Aerys Targaryen's life that wasn't falling apart, but his relationship with Rhaegar was particularly dire. It hadn't quite sunk to Tywin levels, but it was still pretty bad. You see, Eris was convinced that Rhaegar was plotting to get rid of him so that he could become king. He would actually point to Duskendale as an example, saying things like, I bet you couldn't wait for Tywin to storm the town, because then I'd be dead and you'd be king. You'd have loved that, wouldn't you? And for his part, Rhaegar had to watch his father sink further and further into madness, which in and of itself couldn't have been easy. But he'd also had to watch as the repercussions of that madness got bigger and bigger, and the associated body count got higher and higher. And even without there being any kind of sinister plotting on his part, Rhaegar's next in line to rule Westeros, and he's certainly bright enough to look at this situation and see that, well, that the longer his father sits on the throne creating problems, well, the harder his job's gonna be when it comes time for him to take the crown. And so, the theory goes... Rhaegar set up the Hall tournament as a sort of cover, a way for all the lords of the realm to get together and, informally of course, start discussing what could be done about Aerys. Maybe he could be forced to abdicate the throne, or maybe he could remain king in name but the power could be transferred to someone else, or something to sort of staunch the bleeding of damages that Aerys' reign is quickly turning into. Now, there was a precedent for this sort of thing, you know, not of a secretly funded super tournament, but of all the major lords getting together to hash out matters of succession. They were called great councils, and they formed when, for whatever reason, it was unclear which Targaryen was going to get the crown. Which is kind of funny when you think about it, because if this theory is true, and Rhaegar was the shadowy figure that was sponsoring the tournament, well, then it meant that Aerys was right. Rhaegar was plotting against him. He wasn't trying to kill him. But he was definitely trying to strip him of power, which 
isn't necessarily a point for Eris. I mean, you know, if a drunk tries to drive home from a party and his friends have to get a little physical with him in order to pry the keys out of his hand, does that make them the drunk's enemies? Or just concerned friends who are trying to prevent a crash? And even if they were the drunk's enemies, wouldn't you forgive their tactics to keep him from getting behind the wheel if it seemed like they could keep him from harming himself and a lot of innocent bystanders by doing so? I mean, at what point does necessary intervention become a sinister conspiracy? Where would you draw the line? And you know, if that was the true point of the tournament, well, to me, that actually speaks pretty highly of Rhaegar. Forming a great council isn't something that a power-hungry madman does. It's something you do when you think it might be time for a regime change, but you want to go about it in a safe, legal way. It's something you do when you want to shake up the government while making sure its foundations remain secure. And that's impressive, darned impressive, really. There had been plenty of people, heck, plenty of Targaryens, who had tried to seize the crown with absolutely zero concern for what their actions might do to the, well, you know, the mechanisms of government which supported that power in the first place. And here's Rhaegar, supposedly again, getting everybody together to make sure that if there is going to be a transfer of power, that it goes as smoothly as possible. Regardless of what Eris might think, that doesn't make Rhaegar a tyrant. It makes him a shrewd politician who's doing what it takes to safeguard the realm. Secret backer or not, though, as soon as it kicks off, the tournament at Harrenhal is a huge success. Thousands of people are there, all the big houses. It's a party. It's the black and white ball of lances and melees. The only notable absence is Tywin Lannister, who, obviously, doesn't want to have anything to do with Jaime being sworn into the Kingsguard. And pretty soon, Jaime starts thinking the same thing. He's sworn in on the tourney's opening day in front of thousands and thousands of people. And once he's knighted, it must have seemed like a dream come true. The world explodes with applause. Half the realm is chanting his name. He's surrounded by the best knights in the world, men he grew up idolizing. And they're clapping him on the back and calling him their brother. It's the best day of his life. And then right afterwards, literally that night, the king ruins it. A few years later, Meister Martin actually describes the situation, the celebration and immediate hard turn, saying, quote, King Eris made a great show of Jamie's investiture. He, meaning Jamie, said his vows before the king's pavilion, kneeling on the green grass in white armor while half the realm looked on. When Sir Gerald Hightower, who was the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard at the time, raised him up and put the white cloak about his shoulders, a roar went up that Jamie still remembered. So far, so good, right? And then, well, as Martin goes on to say, But that very night, Eris had turned sour, declaring that he had no need of seven Kingsguard here at Harrenhal. Jaime was commanded to return to King's Landing to guard the Queen and little Prince Viserys, who'd remained behind. Even when the White Bull, that's uh, Sir Gerald Hightower again, offered to take that duty himself so Jaime might compete in Lord Wen's tourney, Eris had refused. He'll win no glory here, the king had said. He's mine now, not Tywin's. He'll serve as I see fit. I am the king. I rule and he'll obey. End quote. If it had been unclear to anyone that Jamie was just being used as a PR tool, well, Eris just walked up to a massive chalkboard, wrote that fact down, and underlined it. Jamie served his purpose, he's given the realm a show, and now he's being punished for the crime of being Tywin Lannister's son. And keep in mind, Jamie is only 15 years old at this point. And aside from the disappointment of not being able to participate in the tournament, imagine how jarring it must have been to... 
Well, not only to realize that you're a pawn in a game you never cared about and don't really understand, but also to discover that the man you're sworn to protect and that all these knights who you basically worship are also sworn to protect. Well, you just got a firsthand example that he might not be worth protecting, that he's kind of a spiteful, petty jerk. Jamie's a child at this point. I mean, do you remember how much trivial things used to bother you at that age? Imagine what something like this must do to a teenage psyche. So that's day one. Now, to fully explain what happens next, what kicks this tournament up from being impressive to having historical importance, we'll need to jump back a bit on the timeline. 19 years. It's 262 AC. Eris Targaryen is 18 years old, and he's about to be made king. He's back from the war, his mind is clear, and his entire glorious future lies ahead, waiting for him to ruin. And meanwhile, down in the Stormlands, Stefan Baratheon, the Lord of Storm's End, and his wife Kassana have a child, a baby boy. You might remember that Stefan's great, 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 I'm not even sure how many greats there are, but let's just say it's a lot. His very great-grandfather was Aegon the Conqueror's best friend and possible half-brother, Oris Baratheon, the founder of their house. So Stefan and Kassana have a boy, and they name him Robert Baratheon. Then a year later, in 263 AC, way up in the north, Rickard Stark, the Lord of Winterfell and Overlord of the North, and his wife have their second son, and they name him Eddard, Eddard Stark. Although, everybody calls him Ned, so if you hear me say Ned Stark, I mean Eddard Stark, and if you hear me say Eddard Stark, I mean Ned Stark, I apologize in advance for switching between the two. Now, the Starks are the family that have ruled the North for, well, basically since the first men showed up. I mean, in fact, the North is sort of Infamous, you could say, for being the one place that the Andals couldn't fully conquer. So Eddard Stark and Robert Baratheon belong to two very old and powerful families. And something that powerful families occasionally do when their sons become preteens is send them off to be fostered by other powerful families. It's a way for houses to strengthen alliances. It gives the kids a chance to see some more of the world, meet new people, occasionally serve as hostage. But all in all, it's a pretty good deal. And I mention this because Eddard and Robert meet when they're both being fostered by a man named John Aaron, Lord of the Vale. Now remember, the Vale is that giant Yosemite-esque valley where the Andals first landed. Geographically speaking, it's in the middle of Westeros, just south of the Neck, running along the eastern coast. It's ruled by House Aaron from a castle called the Eyrie. And the Eyrie is just one of the most, I can't tell if it's one of the most awesome or ridiculous castles I've ever seen in my life. It reminds me a bit of, uh, you know, if you've ever seen a picture of the Neuschwanstein Castle in Germany, if you haven't, you should Google it because it's just an incredible piece of architecture. A gigantic building born out of an insane Bavarian king's love of Wagner and swans, which is a fascinating story in and of itself. But, but if you took Neuschwanstein and put it at the very top of a mountain like the Matterhorn, that's the Airy. It's an almost impregnable fortress. In fact, the only time it's ever been breached in combat was back in the days of Aegon the Conqueror, when Aegon's sister managed to land her dragon in its courtyard and take a young lord hostage. Sort of an unusual but highly effective tactic. The point is that it's remote. Very remote. And this is where Eddard and Robert spend a good chunk of their teenage years. It's actually a similar situation to how Tywin and Aerys first met. We talked about it earlier, but when you're a kid and you're stuck somewhere with a kid your own age that you don't know that well, it's going to go one of two ways. You're either going to be best friends or you're going to hate each other. Luckily for some, unluckily for others, Ned and Robert became friends. 
which never ceases to amuse me because basically, again, similar to Tywin and Eris, they have the kind of friendship that you would normally find in a sitcom, only more so. I mean, they're the odd couple of Westeros. Ned is very quiet and serious and concerned with honor and duty and all of that. And Robert? Well, if you took John Belushi, Henry VIII, and Conan the Barbarian, stuck in a blender and mixed them all together, you'd end up with Robert Baratheon. First off, he's a huge guy, physically. I mean, he's six and a half feet tall, covered in muscle, and he loves to fight. His weapon of choice is a giant warhammer that most normal people can't even hold, let alone lift, and he just tosses it around with one hand, knocking knights out like it was the easiest thing in the world. And he also loves to... Well... He loves to party. I mean, this is a man with big appetites. So when it comes to drinking or hunting or women, he can barely contain himself. For instance, by the time he's 14, he's already got at least one illegitimate child that he fathered with a serving girl at the Erie. He's the polar opposite of stern and serious Ned. And yet, again, somehow in that opposites attract kind of way, the two of them manage to become friends. Best friends. Almost more than friends, actually, because Robert is betrothed to Ned's sister, Lyanna Stark, which will make them brothers-in-law and which will make Lyanna the Lady of Storm's End. Oh, that's another difference between the two of them, and, and this is an important one. Both of their fathers are great lords, but Ned is a second son, which means his older brother, a guy named Brandon, will become the Lord of Winterfell once their father dies, and Ned will... Well, he'll probably end up helping Brandon rule the North or going off and getting his own smaller piece of land to run, and that will be that. But Robert is an eldest son, which means that one day he's going to be the Lord of Storm's End and the overlord of the Stormlands. So, at least politically speaking, Lyanna's betrothal to Robert is a good deal for the Starks and for the Baratheons, too. So Robert and Ned spend their teens together in the Airy. Time goes by, they grow up, return to their respective homes, and then one day they get invited to this great tournament that's being thrown by Lord Went at Harrenhal. Which means they're there on day one, when Jamie is honored and then humiliated. And they're also there for the next seven days, where there's just all kinds of spectacular events. I mean, there's jousting, an archery contest, an axe-throwing contest, a seven-sided melee where Robert unhorses a ton of other contenders, a singing tournament. I mean, there's even a bit of scandal when a masked, smallish mystery fighter shows up and enters the list under the name The Knight of the Laughing Tree. He, or she, wins a bunch of contests against a whole lot of seasoned warriors, then just disappears, which makes Eris so paranoid and angry that he practically starts howling at landed knights to find the reedy-looking mystery fighter. My point is, I mean, even among the lavish tournaments that Westeros is accustomed to, the tournament at Harrenhal really feels like something special. And Ned and Robert are there for all of it. They're there for the fights, they're there for the feasts, and they're there in the crowd watching when Lyanna Stark and Rhaegar Targaryen meet for the first time. Or at least what I and most Meisters think is the first time. There's this tradition, custom, at tournaments where whoever wins the jousting competition gets to choose one of the women in the crowd and proclaim her the queen of love and beauty. It's kind of a silly thing, but it's a silly thing that can be used in all sorts of serious ways. If you've got a guy you need a favor from, hey, proclaim his daughter the queen of love and beauty in front of the whole kingdom, and that ought to make things move right along. Or it can be used for more banal, everyday reasons, you know, like giving it to your wife if you've had a fight, or a girl you want to impress, you know, things like that. It's a little bit like getting to single-handedly choose the prom queen, but with potentially wide-ranging political ramifications. At Harrenhal, 
Rhaegar Targaryen is the winner of the jousting competition. Now, if you'll remember, Rhaegar's married to Elia Martell, a princess of Dorne. You know, that giant southern kingdom of Westeros that's got a long history of insurrection. So if I was a betting man, that's pretty much who I'd put my money on getting named the Queen of Love and Beauty, and I'd bet most of Westeros would have felt the same way. Seems like a safe choice, right? Well, if I had done that, I would have lost. Because after Rhaegar wins, he rides past his own wife up to Lyanna Stark of Winterfell and proclaims her the Queen of Love and Beauty. Evidently, when he does this, the entire crowd, thousands of people, instantly go silent. Later, Ned will remember it as the moment that all the smiles died. Because it just doesn't make any sense. Rhaegar is the crown prince, the future king, and he's married. His wife is in the crowd at the tournament. Not to mention the fact that Lyanna Stark is the daughter of a great lord. And on top of that, she's betrothed to the firstborn son of another great lord, who's also in the crowd. So unless he's trying to stir up problems with Dorne, or the Baratheons, or the Starks, or all three, not only does doing this not make any sense, but you could just say that it's crazy. It's a crazy thing to do. And this is a brutal culture, but it's also one that places a lot of value on ceremony and the proper way of doing things when it comes to matters of honor and respect and all of that stuff. So the fact that he does this crazy thing publicly, well, it just makes it even crazier. And what adds to my confusion is that I don't think Rhaegar was trying to cause problems. Because if it's true that he set up the tournament as a way of getting all these powerful people in the same place to talk about his father, well, then the last thing he should be doing is anything that might, at the very least, tick them off. But that's exactly what happens. It makes everybody angry. Brandon Stark, Leanna's older brother, has to be physically restrained from attacking Rhaegar. Ned Stark doesn't have to be restrained, but he's clearly upset by the whole thing. It makes Aerys suspicious, or more suspicious than usual. And meanwhile, Robert Baratheon supposedly laughed it all off, but other than grabbing his hammer and chasing Rhaegar across the courtyard, what else was he going to do? And you just know that's got a sting on some level. Having some handsome prince essentially flirt with your fiancé in front of the entire kingdom? I mean... I'm not a hothead like Robert was, and something like that, well, well, at the very least, it would ruffle my feathers. Now, for the people there, this might have just seemed like a one-time weird thing that Rhaegar did, over and done. But what they didn't know, what they couldn't know, without our nifty benefit of historical hindsight, is that he had effectively planted a seed. That, no, that's not even the right way of describing it. It's more like a... It's more like when Rhaegar Targaryen gave that crown to Lyanna Stark. He set the timer on a bomb, and it started counting down to zero. And I have to wonder now if Rhaegar didn't have a little bit of his father's personality quirks at work here. Because if what he did at the tournament didn't make any sense, then what he does next is just flat-out insane. A few months after Harrenhal, Rhaegar Targaryen gathers some of his men together, heads north, finds Lyanna Stark, and the two of them disappear together. Now, whether he forced her to go with him or if she left with him willingly, nobody knows. But it almost doesn't matter, 
because maybe it was a knight in Leanna's party. Maybe it was a nearby lord who saw them from a distance, or maybe it was just idle gossip started by a bored stable boy. But when people start asking, hey, where'd Leanna Stark go? And by the way, why haven't we seen the crown prince of Westeros in a while? Well, somebody says, I think they ran away together, which quickly turns into Rhaegar kidnapped Lyanna. And pretty soon, the entire kingdom isn't saying, here's a rumor I heard. They're saying, Rhaegar Targaryen kidnapped Lyanna Stark, as if it's a fact. There's a Shakespeare quote that seems, well, if not particularly explanatory, it seems at least fitting here. It's, love is merely a madness. So maybe Rhaegar was in love. Maybe that's why he wasn't acting particularly rationally. Or maybe he was under the influence of some of the, the darker traits that Targaryens sometimes succumb to. And logic didn't factor into it at all. So when people ask me, did Rhaegar and Lyanna run off together? Did he kidnap her? I simply don't know. Nobody does. I mean, there are rumors that Meister Martin has a scroll about it somewhere, but nobody's been able to dig it up. At the end of the day, though, it doesn't really matter, does it? Because the one thing that everybody does know for certain is that the two of them definitely are together, and they definitely should not be. And for someone like, say, Brandon Stark, that's all he needs to know in order to cause some serious trouble. When he gets the news about his sister, Brandon's on his way to River Run. The current lord of the Riverlands is a guy named Tully, and Brandon's betrothed to his eldest daughter, Catelyn. And that's actually why he's headed to River Run to escort Catelyn back to Winterfell for their wedding. But on the way there, he hears that Rhaegar's kidnapped his sister, and he freaks out. He puts the wedding on hold, gets a few of his friends together, and they ride off to the Red Keep in order to save Lyanna. And a quick note about Brandon's friends. They're not just random guys that he met on the street or at the bar or something like that. They're all the sons of pretty powerful lords. So, you know, this isn't just a group of rowdy teenagers, although they're certainly that as well. These guys are future power players in Westeros who already carry some significant political weight. It's interesting because the Starks are sort of like the Targaryens in that their dominant character traits seem to fall into one of two camps. Only instead of madness and greatness, it's more like hot-headed and thoughtful. Ned Stark, for instance, is in the thoughtful camp. He's got a good, calm head on his shoulders, really thinks things through. A look-before-you-leap kind of guy. Whereas Brandon Stark? Well, when he hears about his sister, he doesn't consider the smartest thing to do, or the most prudent thing to do, or anything like that. He gets pissed off. And he decides, to hell with any consequences, I have to act. Which... You know, some people might call that valor or heroism, but to me it just comes across as stupid. I mean, it's true, I've, I've never had my sister kidnapped, so who knows whether or not I'd think it was so stupid if I were in his shoes, but still, I'd like to think I could act a little less like some sort of gallant fool. Stupid or not, though, before anyone older or wiser can stop them, Brandon and his gang have made it to King's Landing. And Brandon, I don't think he had any doubts about whether or not this was a kidnapping. After what happened at the tournament, that whole queen of love and beauty thing, as far as he was concerned, Rhaegar Targaryen had a history of harassing his sister. It was a pattern with this guy, which meant that this absolutely, positively was a kidnapping. No question about it. And maybe that's why, when they get to the Red Keep, Brandon and his buddies don't try and talk to anyone and figure out what actually happened. No. Instead, they ride directly down the main thoroughfare and start yelling for Rhaegar to come out and die. 
And folks, I'm sorry, but that's just, I, that's just, I, I, look, you know the king is paranoid and sees plots everywhere he looks. You know he enjoys hurting people and watching them suffer. You know that his word is the law of the land, and whatever he says needs to happen, he's got a group of the best fighters in the world ready to do it. And knowing all of that, you still decide to ride into, well, basically into his house and start yelling for his eldest son to come out so you can murder him in the street? Teenagers are not. That's just a monumentally dumb thing to do. I mean, try to imagine what would happen if a group of men rode up to the White House on motorcycles and started shouting for the president's only child to come out and die. How long do you think the Secret Service would let that kind of aggression go on for before stepping in and doing something about it, even if the president wasn't psychotic? So, not surprisingly, Eris gets word about what's going on, and he has the entire gang arrested, thrown in jail, and charged with treason. And the irony is that Rhaegar wasn't even at the Red Keep. Just like the rest of the realm, nobody there knew where he and Lyanna actually were. So Brandon's whole plan, well, not only was it a bad idea in the first place, but it turns out that it was completely pointless to boot. Meanwhile, Eris must have felt pretty great about all this. All his crazy ideas that people were plotting against him, that people would try to hurt him and his family. Well, now he's got seven lordlings sitting in his jail that prove that maybe those ideas weren't so crazy after all. And if he was right about that, well, maybe he's right about everything else, too. I can only imagine that it's like, you know, like one of those conspiracy theorists getting hard proof that there actually are mind control chemicals and contrails after all. It'd be scary, sure, but also incredibly satisfying in a weird, I told you so kind of way. Sure, your worst fears may be confirmed, but it's still got to feel a little good to show everybody that you were right all along, doesn't it? Brandon had ridden into the Red Keep with six friends, and Eris sends a letter to each of their families demanding that their fathers come to King's Landing and answer for their son's crimes. Their treason. And if there are any no-shows, well then, he's got an endless supply of wildfire, which is basically slightly magical Westerosi napalm, with six names written all over it, just ready to go. Now, Westeros does have a system of courts in place, only cases aren't overseen by a jury of peers, but by local lords. So while it's a little wonky in that it can be pretty one-sided, it is technically a legal system, and in theory, everybody's case gets heard. And if you get caught up in this legal system, go to court, and you don't like the outcome, you have the option to appeal. Well, sort of appeal. It's not like here where you kind of get to do a do-over trial. The Westerosi version is called a trial by combat which means the defense finds the best fighter it can find, the prosecution does the same thing, and then the two of them battle to the death. If your guy wins, then the gods have decided you're innocent, that the whole thing was just a big misunderstanding, and all the charges are dropped. But if your guy loses, well, then the gods are telling the whole world that not only are you extremely guilty, but it would probably be best for everyone if you were put to death. It's a high-stakes form of justice. Although, for a people whose primary entertainment are tournaments, it's an entertaining one, too. Especially for the small folk. Brandon and Ned's father, we mentioned him earlier, his name was Rickard Stark, the Lord of Winterfell and Warden of the North. Well, he gets this letter from Eris and immediately heads south. 
And I can only imagine how confused he must have been about the whole thing, because last he heard, Brandon was headed to River Run to pick up his future wife. And now he's getting a letter from the king saying that he stands accused of treason? The whole thing must have seemed like a big misunderstanding. Rickard probably thought he'd show up, talk everything out, and they could all put the matter behind them. Or maybe not. I might be wrong about that. It could be that Rickard received the letter, realized that his son had somehow managed to get tangled up in the king's madness, and his life was very much on the line. And actually, the fact that he takes 200 of his finest knights along with him when he heads to King's Landing probably shows that this scenario is closer to the truth. One by one, the fathers of Brandon's friends begin trickling into King's Landing. And one by one, Eris has them and their children executed. Whatever justice they had expected or defense they were planning, it doesn't matter. The letters were just a way of getting them within striking distance of the king's madness. Rickard Stark is the last of the fathers to arrive. And when he does, and when he hears about what happened to the other lords and their children, he immediately demands a trial by combat, which Eris, somewhat surprisingly, grants him. Rickard decides that he's going to be the champion for House Stark. So he puts on his armor and heads to the throne room to meet his opponent. When he arrives, he's immediately grabbed by Eris's guards, who tie him up with a rope, drag him to the front of the Iron Throne, and then hang him by his feet from the ceiling so that he's dangling directly over a giant pile of wood. Rickard starts yelling about how he was promised a trial by combat, and Eris basically says, Oh, you're getting one. You see, you're the champion for House Stark, and the champion for House Targaryen is fire. So all you have to do to prove your son's innocence is not burn. And then Aerys Targaryen has his men light that enormous pile of wood on fire. In King's Landing, there's a group of people known as pyromancers. They're craftsmen, just like carpenters or stonemasons or bricklayers or anyone like that. But their skill set is working with fire, manipulating it in ways that regular people can't. You know, they're the ones, for instance, that know how to make wildfire. And Aerys Targaryen has a special fondness for them. He likes having them around, and by this point, his court is filled with them, and they're very good at their job. So when they light the kindling beneath Rickard Stark, it's not some roaring flame that engulfs him and burns him to a crisp right away. It's a slow, controlled burn that gets hotter and then cooler, and then just a bit hotter than before, and then a bit cooler, and so on. And what this does is, it, it creates a situation where not only is Rickard Stark slowly being burned to death, but he's awake the entire time. He's aware of what's happening. He knows that he's being roasted alive. And remember, he's wearing his armor while this is happening. And after a little while, it gets so hot that it begins glowing red. You know when you're cooking something on the stove and you forget to use an oven mitt and you grab the handle of a pan or something and it's so hot that it burns you? Well, Rickard Stark is trapped inside of a suit that's made of nothing but burning pans, and there's nothing he can do about it. That's worse than being burned alive. That's being cooked. Agony doesn't even begin to describe what it must have been like. And it gets worse. Before the fire is started, Eris has Brandon brought into the throne room and placed in this... This device, I don't even know what else you'd call it, but it's this rope with a noose on one end and a gearbox on the other. Eris puts the noose around Brandon's neck and tells him, Here's the deal. I'm about to burn your father to death, but I'm going to be fair about it. I'm going to put a broadsword just out of your reach. If you can get to it, you can cut your father down. You'll both be allowed to leave, and we can forget this whole thing ever happened. Which, well, now it seems like the Starks might actually have a chance, right? 
The only problem is that that gearbox at the end of the rope, well, when the rope gets pulled away from the box, even just a little bit, it turns in such a way so that the noose on the other end gets tighter, and the harder you pull, the tighter it gets. Brandon Stark may not have been the sharpest guy around, but I have to give him credit. He was brave. He watched his father burn to death. He heard the screams as his armor turned cherry red, and he tried desperately to save him. In the end, though, he couldn't. He strangled himself to death, trying to get that sword, and collapsed at the foot of the Iron Throne, under the smoldering remains of his father, who had watched him die while being cooked alive. The bomb that Rhaegar armed at Harrenhal, it just exploded. Kings, well, at least kings without dragons, but kings have limits to their power. I mean, don't get me wrong, they're powerful people, but there are limits to what they can do. For instance, even if you're a king, you can't just murder someone like Rickard Stark and expect to get away with it scot-free. He's not just some commoner off the street. He's a great lord. He's one of the rulers of the country. He comes from generations of kings himself, which means that if you murder him, let alone torture him and his firstborn son to death, well, there are going to be consequences. And not only because there are thousands and thousands of people who were loyal to him and are now going to be out hungry for revenge, but also because now the other powerful lords are looking at what just happened and thinking, well, if Eris will do that to Rickard Stark, the Lord of Winterfell and Warden of the North, he'll do it to anyone. He'll do it to me. So why should we obey him at all? And once your most powerful subjects start thinking along those lines, you're in trouble. But Eris doesn't know that. He's in a different world, a fantasy land. After he murders Brandon and Rickard, does he immediately go into damage control mode? No. He pays a visit to his wife. And while we can't say for sure what happened, there are credible reports that that night people in the Red Keep heard the Queen screaming for help, that she was being hurt. And the next day she was covered in bite marks and bruises. One night said she looked like she'd been savaged by some wild beast. And I don't bring that up to be gratuitous or salacious or to gossip. I bring it up to show just how completely Eris has embraced his role as a murderous sadomasochist. And he's just getting started. Oh, and it's worth mentioning that you know who's there in the throne room when Eris tortures the Starks? And who's standing outside the Queen's bedroom while Eris abuses her? Jamie Lannister. Who, look, the other members of the Kingsguard, they were good men. But they were also men, not teenagers. And not only that, but they'd been around for a while. They'd had time to get used to Eris. They're sort of like, like frogs in a pot of boiling water, right? They've been around long enough that all of this sort of seems normal. It's come up on them by degrees. But for Jamie, well, it's like somebody threw him into that pot without any warning whatsoever. He's gone from having all these romantic ideas about kings and knights to basically being almost complicit in some nasty, nasty stuff. Stuff that he thought kings and knights were supposed to prevent. I can only imagine that that is causing him some emotional distress. Meanwhile, Eddard Stark and Robert Baratheon are visiting John Aaron at the Eyrie. Just a nice visit, a chance for the old gang, the three amigos, to get back together and spend some peaceful, relaxing time together in the mountains. And while they're there, John Aaron gets a letter from Aerys Targaryen, demanding that he kill both of them. 
Eris's logic was, if Rickard Stark was a traitor and Brandon Stark was a traitor, well then, Eddard Stark is probably a traitor too, so he needs to be killed. And you know what? Robert's fiance was just kidnapped or whatever by Rhaegar, so there's no trusting him either. Probably best just to knock him off as well. But here's the thing about John Aaron. First off, he's not the sort of guy who will just murder someone because a letter from the king tells him to. But also, he's been trying for years to produce an heir, and he has never been able to. In fact, up until a few days ago, his heir had been his nephew, Elbert. But as luck would sadly have it, Elbert was Brandon Stark's good friend, and he was one of the guys who rode with him to King's Landing to save Lyanna, and Eris just murdered him. So here's John Aaron, a decent guy without any kids of his own. But he does have Ned and Robert, two young men that, well, he doesn't think of them as former wards. He helped raise them. He watched them grow up, and he's more than a little attached to the two of them. Blood relation or no, he considers them his sons. And now the Mad King is asking him to send them his way so that he can probably torture them to death, just like he did to Rickard and Brandon Stark, not to mention his nephew, poor old Elbert. Well, there's just no way that a guy like John Aaron is going to do that. And he doesn't. He refuses. And when you refuse the orders of a king, you're not just saying, well, I've looked over your request and decided that it simply isn't the right time to comply right now. No. At the very least, you're risking another Duskendale. And John Aaron knows that. And he's okay with it. More than okay. Because as far as he's concerned, he's not risking another Duskendale. He's starting a war. After he dismisses Eris's letter, John calls his banners, which means that he tells all of the lords who serve under him, basically everyone in the Vale, to rally the troops, stock up provisions, and make any domestic arrangements that are necessary because the men might be gone for a while. Mad King Eris has gone too far this time, and John Aaron is going to do something about it. The only hitch is that not everyone follows his order. In fact, a few lords flat out refuse and say, wait a second, we're your guys, but ultimately our allegiance is to the king. We're not going to join your rebellion. In fact, we're going to do everything we can to stop it. Because as far as we're concerned, you're all traitors. And it's funny because in a certain way, they're doing exactly what John Aaron just did. He was sworn to obey the king and he didn't like an order the king gave and so he ignored it. And now his bannermen are doing the exact same thing. Which results in two sides. Those who are loyal to the crown, known as the loyalists. And then there's the rebels, who obviously are the ones rebelling. Now, in order for John Aaron's rebellion to have a chance, Robert and Ned have to get back home immediately. Basically yesterday. I mean, this isn't some small battle they're starting. It's a huge deal. And in order to get their respective bannermen all on the same page, they're going to need to be there in person. There being their respective castles. Winterfell for Ned and Storm's End for Robert. And this is a problem, because one of the earliest loyalist commanders is a guy named Mark Grafton. He was one of John Aaron's bannermen, and now he's doing everything he can to make sure that the rebellion dies before it can even get started. Say what you will about Aerys Targaryen, but there's a certain kind of logic in wanting him to be on your side, not against you, and Mark Grafton's doing everything he can to show that he's not going to let any of these rebels get out of the Vale too easily. And he does that by blocking access to Galltown which is the Vale's only major port. 
So now, well, the Vale is basically a giant valley with only two roads in and out. And neither one is a good option, because if Ned and Robert try to use them, there's no telling who they'll run into. And in fact, running into just about anyone is bad news, because at this point, most of the realm doesn't even know that there's a rebellion brewing. So they automatically default into the loyalist camp, which means that taking the roads is just asking for a fight. But time is of the essence here. They need to keep up the momentum of their cause. Right now, the rebellion is like... Well, it's like the alien that bursts out of John Hurt's chest in the movie Alien, right? It's absolutely dangerous, but it's too small to really be that much of a threat to the rest of the crew, or in this case, the kingdom. But give it just a little time to grow, and it's going to be a real problem. Ned, who's got the longer journey, can't afford to wait. So he gets a party together, and they climb out over the mountains that frame the northern side of the Vale. They're called the Mountains of the Moon, and, you know, while pretty, they aren't exactly the safest of places. I mean, first off, you're going to have to deal with all the normal problems that come with climbing over a mountain. Stuff like falling off a cliff or through a snowbank or getting caught in an avalanche or the classic get lost and starve to death situation. You know, typical mountain stuff. But on top of all that, the mountains of the moon are crawling with clans that don't consider themselves to be part of the Seven Kingdoms. Sort of like how if you go deep enough into Appalachia, you'll find families living in valleys or on mountaintops that are so far off the grid that it's just never been worth the effort to make sure that they're following all the laws that they'd have to really follow to make them part of America. Same deal with the Moon Clans. They've got scary-sounding names like the Burned Men, the Black Ears, and the Stone Crows. And they don't care what house you're from or who your allies are or who your father was. They've lived on their own in those mountains for thousands of years. They know them backwards and forwards, and if they catch you wandering around in them, the odds are pretty good that they're going to kill you. So Ned's taking a real gamble when he decides to try for the mountains. Especially because, you know, he's no longer a minor political figure in Westeros. When Eris killed Rickard and Brandon Stark, Ned became the oldest living male Stark, which means that he's now the Lord of Winterfell and the Warden of the North. So in some small, weird way, and Ned would, Ned would never, ever look at it this way, but, but Eris kind of did him a favor by murdering his father and brother, because Ned just leveled up in a major way. So when Ned goes through the mountains of the moon, that's no longer a second son of a major house risking his life. That's a great lord risking the fate of his family line. It's a huge risk, and it speaks to the intensity of the situation that somebody as level-headed as Ned would be willing to take it. But Ned's gambit works. He makes it over the mountains of the moon, where he's able to find a tiny ship that can take him across the sea, up and towards Winterfell. And you know, for most of his life, it seems like Ned had been overshadowed by Brandon, who was always, you know, the the rock star of the Starks. He had the charm, the good looks, the birthright, all of that stuff. You know, it sort of left Ned to look like a, you know, like a boring, horse-faced, quiet weirdo by comparison. But for all of that, Brandon was the one who, when the going got tough, lasted about 15 seconds before getting himself killed. And it's here, when Ned is trying to get a minor lord to agree to shuttle him across the sea, that we get our first glimpse of the real Ned Stark. When the lord who owns the ship starts giving Ned trouble over whether or not he should help him, saying things like, I'll get in trouble if I help you, I could be punished. What if you don't win? Well, Ned supposedly looks over at him and says, but what if I do? The underlying threat being, I just climbed over a mountain. I'm forming a rebellion against my king. Imagine what I'll do to you. Well, Ned gets the ship, and he makes it back to Winterfell. And once he gets there, he calls his banners and prepares to march back south to war. Now, 
While Ned's trying to make his way north, Robert's trying to make his way south, back to Storm's End. Robert's not like Ned, though. He's not going to sneak his way across some mountains. If he needs to get out, he's going to fight his way out. And so if Mark Grafton is blocking Gulltown, well then, from Robert's point of view, Mark Grafton is just begging to be introduced to his Warhammer. Which is an introduction that he makes, terminally, in the first actual battle of this war, the Battle of Gulltown. The rebels storm the gates, and Robert's actually the first one over them, and they manage to take the city from the Loyalists, which is huge for the rebels. Not only is their first fight a victory, but it gives John Aaron a place to use as his base of operations while Robert sails south to Storm's End. I think it's important to point out here that there were no Targaryens at the Battle of Gulltown. These were citizens of the Vale fighting other citizens of the Vale, and what side you were on depended on... Well, some people were fighting because their liege lord didn't give them any other options, but others were fighting because they made the choice we talked about earlier, whether to stay loyal to the king or to participate in open rebellion. And this choice wasn't staying in the veil. It was rippling out across the Seven Kingdoms, and sooner or later, everyone was going to have to grapple with it. I don't envy anyone that decision. Because both sides were right. Both sides could point at the other and say, these people, their cause, it's wrong. And they would be absolutely correct. Now, for people like Ned Stark, there is no choice, right? I mean, the king murdered and tortured his father and brother before going the extra mile and sentencing him to death. And not only that, but as far as Ned knows, the crown prince kidnapped his only sister. I mean, same thing with Robert. He doesn't have a choice. The king just abruptly sentenced him to death out of the blue. So if their options are fight or die, well, of course they're going to fight. But for other people, people without a personal, you know, murdered family member or kidnapped bride kind of stake in the matter, it's a tougher call. Yes, Eris is the mad king, but he's still the king, the ruler they've given their word to obey. So even if they don't like him personally, they can still value what he represents, which is three centuries of stability, history, tradition, culture, government, the possibility of a lasting peace. Do his actions, no matter how vile, do they justify citizens breaking their oath and threatening everything on that list? A lot of people ask themselves that question and say, no, they don't. And they join the loyalists. And then there are others who say, well, if this is how a monarch behaves, well, then he gives up any right he has to rule. And they join the rebels. And then there were other more pragmatic factors that I'm sure played into people's decision-making process. If things economically are going pretty good for you under the Targaryen rule, why would you want to shake that up? Or conversely, if you're a smaller lord and you've never been able to catch a break under the Targaryens, never had a chance to maybe get a bit more land, maybe, or become a little bit more powerful, well, maybe you see this as your big chance to help shake things up and create a new status quo where you can get ahead. Ultimately, though, no matter what your thought process behind it was, after the Battle of Gulltown, you had to make a decision, and you had to make it fast. Because Robert and John and Ned, the three of them had opened a gate marked Civil War and were getting ready to march their armies straight through it. By the time that Robert and Ned have each gotten home and called their banners, the Reach and Dorne had both thrown in with the Targaryens. The Riverlands hadn't decided yet, although they're leaning towards the rebels, and meanwhile, nobody's heard anything from Casterly Rock, which isn't too surprising, as Eris hasn't even reached out to Tywin for help dealing with the situation. Still, the Reach is one of the stronger of the Seven Kingdoms, lots of resources and soldiers ready to go, 
Dorne's no slouch either, and it has a lot of strong ties to the throne. The future king is going to be half Dornish, for starters. And on top of that, not all of the rebel subjects are declaring for them. Some are pulling a Mark Grifton and defying their liege lords and switching to the loyalists, or just taking a pass and refusing to fight altogether. And during this war, that's going to be a constant problem for the rebellion. So, even though they've got a lot of momentum, it's by no means a foregone conclusion that the rebels are going to win this fight. That said, they do have a weapon that the loyalists don't. Marketing. At some point, John, Ned, and Robert sit down and they have a conversation about, well, well, what do we do if we actually win this thing? Do we just get rid of Eris? Do we get rid of the monarchy entirely? I mean, what's the end game here? And they come to the conclusion that, if they do win, Robert's going to become the new king. Which, on the surface, you might think that if anyone is going to be the new king, it should be Ned. I mean, he's the one who just got most of his family murdered or kidnapped. Objectively speaking, he's the most aggrieved of the three. He's also a guy with a rock-solid moral code. I mean, if you're making a list of the most honorable guys in Westeros, his name is right at the top. You add all that up, and on paper at least, Ned Stark seems like a pretty good candidate for king. But there are some good reasons that Robert at the time, was the smarter choice. The primary one being hereditary. Remember, Robert's very great-grandfather, Oris Baratheon, was rumored to be Aegon the Conqueror's half-brother. And not only that, but throughout the years, there have been a handful of Baratheon-Targaryen marriages. So even though it's not like Robert's a first cousin or anything, he does have just enough Targaryen blood so that the rebels can make an argument along the lines of, oh, well, we're not really traitors. Robert's basically a full Targaryen anyway, so really we're just swapping out the crazy king for a newer, saner model. That's all we're doing. So with Robert, you get all the benefits of a Targaryen king, the tradition, the stability, the history, etc., and none of the drawbacks like burning people alive and so on. Additionally, Robert's got something that's extremely valuable when you're trying to rally people to your cause, but paradoxically is also sort of undefinable. So for lack of a better word, let's call it charisma or personal magnetism or star power. And I don't mean charisma like your uncle's got, where he can always crack up the family at Thanksgiving. Big deal. I mean charisma on the level of Bill Clinton or Steve Jobs or even somebody like Adolf Hitler. People whose force of personality was so strong that it was almost that it was almost a physical thing. I mean, they're the people who have, or had, a sort of reality-bending effect that just naturally made people want to be on their side, to buy whatever it was that they were selling. You know, earlier, when I compared Robert to John Belushi, it, it wasn't just because of his larger-than-life appetites, it was because... Well, you know, there's this book called Live from New York. It's a history of the first 25 years of Saturday Night Live's run. And there's a portion where Jim Belushi is talking about his brother. That would be John. You know, he's talking about his personality. Actually, I have the exact quote here. And this is Jim Belushi speaking. And he says, quote, I'm going to tell you a little something about my brother. I don't care how strong-willed you are. After 20 minutes, you'd be doing whatever he wanted you to do. And you'd love it. He'd have you dancing on the cigarette machine in two hours and loving it. He was just that powerful. End quote. That's Robert Baratheon. During one of the earlier battles in this war, Robert ends up killing a powerful, loyalist lord and capturing his son. He takes the son back to Storm's End, and within three days, Robert's convinced him to switch sides and fight for the rebels. And the son, despite knowing that Robert just killed his father, the son agrees. And not only that, he eventually dies fighting for Robert's cause. I mean, that's charisma. That's charisma on steroids. 
And finally, there's another great reason to turn the John Aaron and Friends Rebellion into Robert's Rebellion. And it's because doing so allows them to paint their cause not as an act of treason, but as a love story. I mean, after all, this whole thing started because Rhaegar kidnapped Robert's fiancée, whom he loved more than anything. He's not doing this for any old reason, but for love, the highest of virtues. Oh, and don't pay any attention to the rumors that Robert's sleeping with half the realm and has a soft spot for prostitutes and violence. He's doing all of this for love. Trust us on that one. Once they make their decision, it turns out that Robert's an easy sell to the public. And while you don't need someone like that to win a war, it certainly helps. It gives people someone to rally around, someone they can feel good about fighting for. Now the rebels can go to undecided houses and paint the war in a way that feels a little more black and white. On the one side, there's a king who enjoys burning people to death, hides in his castle, doesn't fight his own battles, and has fingernails that are a foot long. And on the other side, you've got a young, vibrant warrior who's almost unbeatable on the field, open-handed with his enemies, good to his friends, and not only fights in his own battles, but is usually the one leading the charge and yelling at his soldiers to keep up. And when you put it that way, it certainly seems like the rebels have a lot going for them, both practically and ideologically. Which is not to say that the loyalists only had sticks in the mud to work with. For instance, just about everyone who knew him agrees that Rhaegar Targaryen was a natural-born leader. Handsome, intelligent, well-liked, not crazy, the perfect person to build a cause around. For the loyalists to point at and say, see, this is the monarchy that we're fighting to preserve. This guy is not only the rightful king, but he's also just like Robert, minus the womanizing. And if that wasn't enough, he also plays the harp. The only problem is that none of that means anything if nobody knows where you are. And despite the fact that he kinda, sorta, inadvertently started this whole kingdom-wide civil war thing, Rhaegar's still nowhere to be found, which is just terrible for the loyalists, because this is when they need him the most. By this point, Robert's returned to the Stormlands, marshaled his army, left one of his younger brothers, a man named Stannis Baratheon, in charge of defending Storm's End, and has marched out to meet up with Ned, who's currently leading his troops down from Winterfell. The idea is that Robert will head west, damage the power of the Reach as much as he can, then loop north, completely bypass King's Landing, and then he and Ned will meet up in the Riverlands, along with Jon Arryn, who's coming in from the east. From there, they'll join their three armies together and deal with the Loyalists. And on this march west, Robert's on a hot streak. Commanding men in the field? It's what he was made for. It's what he was born to do. At one point, he manages to win three different battles in a single day. He finds out that three of his bannermen have decided to join forces and march on Storm's End. And so Robert takes his army to their secret meeting place, a ruined castle called Summerhall, and he waits for them to arrive. And then, as each army shows up, his forces overwhelm them, recoup for an hour or two, then do it again, and then again. Three times in a day. I mean, that's just incredible. Robert had his faults, but he really was just tremendously talented when it came to warfare. But he's not invincible. He does lose a battle on this march, and it's when he first comes up against the armies of the Reach. A quick reminder, the Reach is the southwestern portion of Westeros. Its overlords are House Tyrell, which are one of the seven great houses, and the current guy in charge is named Mace Tyrell. Now, Mace Tyrell, we'll we'll talk about him more later, but he's, he's the kind of guy that's absolutely positive that he's just a spectacular battle commander, while in reality, at best, he's only sort of okay. However... His second-in-command is a guy named Randall Tarley, and he is a great commander, and he's the one who's able to break Robert's winning streak. 
It's called the Battle of Ashford, and the details are scarce, but apparently Randall was leading Mace Terrell's vanguard, the lead forces of the Terrells, when he somehow managed to get the drop on Robert's army, beat them in battle, and force them to retreat. This is the first major win for the Loyalists. And instead of keeping that momentum alive by giving chase and following a now weakened Robert, Mace Terrell shows up, assumes control of Randall's troops, and decides to march further east so that he can lay siege to Storm's End. And while capturing Storm's End would effectively rob Robert of a home base, it seems like a poor decision to me, because there's not really anybody at Storm's End, just a small garrison, and Robert's already marshaled his army. So, even if he loses access to the Stormlands, it almost doesn't matter. He's already got what he needs from them. So big deal if they take Storm's End. Mace Terrell's being a real dummy here. I would have argued, and I have to imagine that this is similar to what Randall Tarley probably did argue, that in the grand scheme of things, Storm's End didn't matter. And that a much, much better use of Terrell's forces would be chasing Robert down. Mace Terrell disagrees, though, which is amusing because this really was a moment when he had a very good chance of winning the war. You see, because not only was Robert wounded at Ashford, a minor wound, but a wound nonetheless, but at some point during the retreat, he somehow managed to get separated from most of his army and was forced to hide out in a town called Stony Sept, which is up in the Riverlands. Robert is wounded and alone, and he's never been weaker. So now you've got Ned marching south, John Aaron marching west to meet him, the Tyrells headed east to take control of the Stormlands, and Robert, the face of the entire rebellion, hiding out in the equivalent of small-town America, basically by himself. And while all of this is going on, back in King's Landing, Eris is busy being a terrible leader. First off, he's not really treating the situation with the gravitas that it deserves. He's just getting annoyed by the rebels when he should be terrified. Additionally, he doesn't have anyone at court that can balance out his weaknesses. Ever since Tywin left, Eris has been going through hands of the kings like crazy. It's just a parade of weak, ineffective yes-men rotating through the court. Now, around the time that the Battle of Ashford happens, Eris does do one somewhat competent thing. He fires his latest hand, I can't remember his name, there's too many of them, but he replaces him with a young man named John Connington. It's not a bad choice. Connington's a lordling from the south, a friend of Rhaegar's, and was known to be really very smart, a good commander, and a fierce warrior. From what I can tell, he was actually a pretty impressive guy. In fact, in normal circumstances, he might have had what it took to be a great hand. But these aren't normal circumstances. There's a war on. Eris had hired Connington in part because of his youth. He's around 18 years old, maybe 20, but in the hopes that having a young, energetic leader on his side would help dim Robert's star a little bit, maybe attract a few lords who were on the fence about which side to join. In theory, it's not a bad idea, except whether Eris wants to admit it or not, this is a full-out war, and war has a way of taking something that in regular life might be considered a plus and turning it into a minus. All of which is a long way of saying that Connington's youth has been transformed into inexperience, which in wartime can be a huge liability. But of course, Eris isn't able to see that. He just sees a shiny, new, Targaryen-approved recruiting tool. Shortly after Connington becomes Hand, he gets word that Robert is basically all alone in Stony Sept, which must have seemed like a gift from the gods, because Connington's smart enough to see that this is a real chance to crush the rebels in one shot, impress the king, and become a hero. So he gets an army together and rushes off to Stony Sept with visions of glory racing through his head. At the same time, Ned hears about all of this, and realizes it's critical that he beat Connington to Stony Sept. 
Because if he doesn't, and Connington's able to find Robert, well, it's hard to have Robert's rebellion if there's no Robert, right? So Ned gathers some of his men together, along with a few of Hoster Tully's, who at this point has joined the rebels full on, and they take off, heading south to Stony Sept at full speed. Connington beats them there. He has his army surround the city. There's no way for anyone to get in, and there's no way for anyone to get out. Which means now, as far as Connington's concerned, there's nothing standing between him gutting Robert like a pig and winning the war all by himself. Well, there is one thing, and that is he can't find Robert. It's partly because the town folk are helping him hide, and partly because Connington doesn't immediately check the local brothel, which is where Robert's been hiding the entire time. It's funny to think that maybe the rebel propaganda about this being a war fought for true love might have blinded Connington to the fact that Robert was a known womanizer. Connington has his men start going door to door, looking for Robert. It's not exactly a huge town, and so sooner or later he'll have to turn up. The only problem with this strategy, though, is that it takes time. And time is the one thing Connington does not have. And to prove it, while he's busy searching for Robert, Ned shows up with his army. What happens next is not a traditional battle, in that most of the fighting between the loyalists and the rebels takes place in the actual town. I mean, they're fighting in the streets, in alleyways, on rooftops. It's a lot different than two armies squaring off in an empty field. And in the middle of all this, the villagers start ringing all of the bells in town as a way of telling people to come out and fight. Robert hears the commotion, emerges from hiding, and together he and Ned, and mostly Ned's army, beat back Connington's forces. It's known as the Battle of the Bells, and it has a couple of interesting consequences. The first is that it forces Eris to finally realize that Robert isn't just a surly lord who's causing some trouble. He's a legitimate threat to the Targaryen dynasty, and he needs to be treated like one. So Eris sends word to the leader of Dorne, a man named Doran Martell, saying that he'd better send up his troops pronto. And if he doesn't, well, he should keep in mind that Rhaegar's wife, Elia, Dorne's sister and a princess of Dorne, Well, there's just no telling what might happen to her without those troops. It's a war, after all, and terrible things happen to princesses in war all the time. Always a charmer, that heiress. Not only was this unnecessary, as Dorne almost definitely would have sent the troops regardless, but it also conveniently brushes aside the fact that this whole thing started because Rhaegar didn't crown Elia the Queen of Love and Beauty. But when you're trying to win a war, sometimes you wind up playing fast and loose with the facts. Next, he fires John Connington. And by that, I mean he's let him go from his job, not, you know, actually set him on fire. Not only that, but he strips him of all his land and titles and then exiles him to Essos for the rest of his life. Which was a bad move because, loss or no, Connington was a talented guy and Eris is in short supply of those at the moment. Oh, and a quick side story. Like a former high school quarterback who maybe blew the big game his senior year and then obsessed over it for the rest of his life, Connington was never able to fully move past the Battle of the Bells. One night in Essos, he's hanging out with another Westerosi expat, and they're talking over drinks about Robert's Rebellion and roads not taken and that sort of stuff. And Connington, who's been playing the battle over and over again in his mind for years, says, There's nothing else I could have done. The gods wanted me to lose that day. Tywin Lannister couldn't have done anything differently. To which his friend replies, Ah, but that's where you're wrong. Tywin Lannister wouldn't have surrounded the town and then searched for Robert. Tywin Lannister would have surrounded the town and then burned it to the ground. He would have killed every man, woman, and child in that city and then found Robert's bones and brought them to Eris. Was failing to do something so drastic a symptom of John Connington's youth and inexperience? 
Or was it a result of his humanity? If given a few more years, would he approach another similar battle with a willingness to do whatever it took to win? Is that something that comes with age? Or do you have to be born with it? Is it acquired or a built-in feature of someone's personality? In the case of John Connington, we'll never know, as he drank himself to death a few years later. And while that's not particularly entertaining in any way, I do find it a little amusing, I guess you could say, that even over in Essos, everyone knows exactly what sort of man Tywin Lannister was. Which actually makes for an interesting what-if scenario. What if Tywin had still been hand when Robert's Rebellion started up? I'd be willing to bet that in that situation, the Rebellion wouldn't have made it out of the Vale. Heck, I bet it wouldn't have even made it out of the Eyrie. But back to the war. After the Battle of the Bells, a big change happens to the rebel leaders. John Arryn and Eddard Stark become family, legally speaking. They each marry one of Hoster Tully's daughters. Ned marries Catelyn, who had been engaged to his brother Brandon, and John marries her younger sister, Lysa. Must have been a bit odd for Ned, not only marrying your brother's fiance, but at the same time having your sort of dad become your de facto brother-in-law. Odd or not, though, it was the deal that brought the Tullys firmly into the rebel camp which meant that now there are four great houses siding with the rebels. And this is when Rhaegar Targaryen finally reappears at the Red Keep. He won't say what he's been up to for the past nine months or so, just that he's been somewhere down south, and that now he's back and ready to get things into shape. And he starts by convincing his father to ask Tywin Lannister for help. Which is a pretty big deal. I mean, the two of them weren't on speaking terms, and the last few times that they had talked to each other, Eris was so paranoid about Tywin being a threat that he had to have all the Kingsguard around just to feel safe. And also, a cornerstone of Eris's anxiety was trying to prove to the realm that he didn't need Tywin to solve his problems. So the fact that Eris reached out shows just how desperate he was. There's never a response. Which couldn't have been too surprising, as ever since the rebellion started, Casterly Rock had gone radio silent, or raven silent, or whatever. And once it becomes clear that there's no help coming from the Westerlands, Rhaegar assumes control of the Loyalist army and starts making plans to march north to face the rebels. This army includes the Dornish soldiers that have been sent up, the remnants of Connington's forces, soldiers from the Crownlands, which includes all the area around King's Landing, and then some men from the Reach. Not all the men from the Reach, though, as a large chunk of them are tied up in Mace Terrell's Siege of Storm's End. A siege which, the more I read about, the more inclined I am to start calling Mace's Folly. Those soldiers would have been a huge help fighting the rebels, who are now all north of King's Landing. But instead, they're just sitting around the Stormlands, basically guarding a castle that nobody needs. Regardless, the morning that Rhaegar leaves, he's stopped in the courtyard by Jaime Lannister, who basically begs to go along with him. All of the other Kingsguard are involved in the fighting. Three are marching north with Rhaegar to fight, and three are headed south on a clandestine, super-secret mission of some sort. Jaime doesn't want to sit around King's Landing. He already had to miss the tournament at Harrenhal. There's no way he's going to miss out on an actual war. He wants to fight. And not only that, he wants to fight for the king he's sworn to protect. Especially because, ever since he was sworn in, he's basically been babysitting the queen and her children. Which, that's, I'm sorry, but that's just a complete waste for a fighter of his caliber. So Jamie is begging to go with him, and Rhaegar says, sorry, I can't. My dad likes having you around as Tywin insurance and all of that. But then he follows up with something interesting. He tells Jamie that after he, after Rhaegar, defeats the rebels and returns to the Red Keep, he's going to make sure that there are some pretty big changes to his father's rule. 
Meister Martin actually has a transcript of the conversation. And this is uh, Rhaegar in this quote, speaking to Jamie Lannister now, saying, When the battle's done, I mean to call a council. Changes will be made. I meant to do it long ago, but, well, it does no good to speak of roads not taken. We shall talk when I return. End quote. I've always found that fascinating because, again, it just goes to show that Rhaegar knew his father had to be replaced. He knew it. He wanted it to happen. And yet here he was getting ready to go off and fight an army that wanted the exact same thing. It's too late, way too late for them to sit down and talk it out. As far as Robert's concerned, Rhaegar kidnapped Lyanna. And later, he'll start believing that not only did he kidnap her, but he also raped her hundreds of times. And for all his womanizing ways, Robert cared about Lyanna. He claimed to love her, and, and while I don't know if that's true, at the very least I think he was genuinely in love with the idea of her. Which means that Robert considers Rhaegar a monster, coming from a family of monsters who have a track record of murder and torture a league long. As far as he's concerned, they all have to be stopped. As for Rhaegar, even though he agrees that his father has got to go, he can't just sacrifice his family to make that happen. His family is what built this country. It's what keeps it together. It's what keeps the whole thing going. And that doesn't even take into account his wife, his children, his mother and brother. Is he just supposed to stand aside and let the rebels burn that all to the ground? It just goes to show that, that in this world, you're constantly finding good people who are forced into impossible situations. Regardless, Rhaegar leaves Jamie behind, heads north, and a few weeks later, the Loyalist and rebel armies meet in the Riverlands, where three major rivers, the Red Fork, the Blue Fork, and the Green Fork, come together, forming an area that's known as the Trident. And when the fighting breaks out, it centers around the ford where the Green Fork joins the other rivers, which will soon be known as the Ruby Ford. The two sides are roughly, they're sort of evenly matched at this point. I mean, the rebels have around 35,000 men, the loyalists a little more, around 40,000. But it's a funny battle, though, because even though there are nearly 80,000 people involved, the whole thing hinges on just two men. In the middle of this full-on war, with people fighting and dying everywhere, and unbelievable noise and confusion and chaos raging like a hurricane in all directions, Robert Baratheon and Rhaegar Targaryen somehow manage to find one another. They meet in the center of the battle, in the middle of a river, and they have a showdown. Singers couldn't have written it any better. Now, as I've said... Robert is one of the most famous fighters in Westeros, a huge guy who fights with a giant hammer. He's basically a machine built for killing. But Rhaegar was no slouch in the one-on-one -on -one fight to the death department either. He's smaller than Robert, sure, but remember, this whole mess started after he won a tournament against the best fighters in all of Westeros. So if I was watching all of this happen in real time, statistically, I'd have to say that it was a pretty even fight. Visually, I'd say that Rhaegar was a goner, but you know, a little technique can go a long way. But at the end of the day, it doesn't go far enough. Robert's battle-hardened. He's been fighting almost nonstop for months at this point, and Rhaegar's only recently re-emerged from wherever he'd been holed up with Lyanna Stark. However good he may have been at the tourney of Harrenhal, he's got to be a little rusty now, and the stakes are life and death. Meister Garcia II, who admittedly throughout most of his writing is a little harsh on Rhaegar in general, still has a good description of the fight, saying, quote, 
The battle screamed about Lord Robert and Prince Rhaegar both, and by the will of the gods, or by chance, or perhaps by design, they met amidst the shallows of the ford. The two knights fought valiantly upon their destriers, according to all accounts, for despite his crimes, Prince Rhaegar was no coward. Lord Robert was wounded by the dragon prince in the combat, yet in the end, Baratheon's ferocious strength and his thirst to avenge the shame brought upon his stolen betrothed proved the greater. His warhammer found its mark, and Robert drove the spike through Rhaegar's chest. End quote. The hit was so hard that Rhaegar's armor had some rubies inlaid on the chest plate in the shape of a three-headed dragon. The impact tears them out of their sockets, and they go flying into the river. Soldiers on both sides of the battle stopped fighting to collect them, ignoring the fact that their prince is gasping for his last breaths just a few feet away. It's why that area is now known as the Ruby Ford. Now, supposedly, as he's lying there in the water, dying, Rhaegar whispers a woman's name. Although, I don't know how anybody would be able to hear a whisper in a war, so the truth is that he probably just drowned to death in his own blood without saying a thing. But you know, if I'm wrong, which I'm known to be from time to time, I'd bet that he almost certainly whispered Elia, his wife's name, as a way of apologizing for all the pain he recently caused her in the realm. Whisper or no, though, shortly after he gets his chest caved in, Rhaegar Targaryen, the crown prince of Westeros, dies in the mud at the feet of Robert Baratheon. When the loyalist forces see that their commander, their prince, has died, they break. They either run away or surrender, but one way or the other, they stop fighting, and the Battle of the Trident is over. This is a huge victory for the rebels. The Loyalists still have the Reach and Dorne on their side, but right now there's nothing between the rebel army and King's Landing, and if they can take King's Landing, then the war is over. The only thing holding them back is Robert. That wound that Meister Garcia mentioned turns out to be pretty serious. So Robert can't just rush off to the next battle. He needs to heal a bit first, which is just, it's just terrible timing. I mean, right now the rebels have the upper hand. They need to wrap this war up before the loyalists can regroup. So instead of calling for a pause or a timeout, Robert sends Ned down with a vanguard to secure King's Landing. The plan being that Robert will be following right behind just as soon as he's able. When Eris hears about the death of Rhaegar, well, he realizes that the Red Keep might not be the safest place anymore. He doesn't flee, but as a precautionary measure, he does send Rhaella, who at this point is pregnant again, and their younger, well, now only son, Viserys, to Dragonstone, which is that island off the eastern coast of Westeros that Aegon the Conqueror launched his invasion from so many years ago. In the years since, it's become sort of a safe haven for the Targaryen bloodline. But Eris doesn't send Rhaegar's wife or their children, a girl named Rhaenys and a baby boy named Aegon. Seems like the Targaryens always had to have at least one family member named Aegon lying around. But no, they have to remain behind to ensure that Dorne stays loyal. Which, there's no reason to doubt Dorne's loyalties at this point, but Eris is spiraling out of control. At this point, everyone's a traitor in waiting. And he has good reason to be scared. What's left of his army is scattered around the Riverlands, and the only other loyal forces are either too far away to be of any help, or wrapped up in the pointless siege of Storm's End. For all intents and purposes, outside of the City Watch, which is sort of like the local police, King's Landing is completely defenseless against the rebel army. And then, miraculously, just as it looks like Eris might be out of options, help arrives. An army of 12,000 men show up just outside the city gates, and they're led by none other than Eris' childhood friend, Tywin Lannister, who, up until this point, had sat out the entire war. 
but now he's here. One of the best field commanders in all of Westerosi history is just outside the city gates, with thousands of fresh troops, and he's ready to save the day. It must have seemed too good to be true. And to his credit, Eris suspected that it was. I mean, it's a little suspicious, right? This army showing up right when he needs them the most? So even though Tywin keeps sending messages saying, Open the gates, I'm here to help, Eris doesn't do it. He stalls, and when he can't stall any longer, he goes to two of his council members for advice. The first is Varys. He's the spy master I mentioned earlier, the one that Eris had brought over from Essos. And Varys is pretty cut and dry about the whole thing. He takes one look at Tywin's army and tells Eris that it's a trap, that if he lets Tywin in, he's going to regret it. But then there's Grandmeister Pycelle, who's been a staple at court for way longer than Varys, and he's saying the exact opposite. He's saying, a trap? Tywin Lannister is your oldest friend. He'd never hurt you. Of course he's here to save you. Open the gates before it's too late. It's funny, isn't it? How even if we know, really know, deep down inside, that something is too good to be true, we'll still let hope drown out that intuition? I ask because, in the end, even though he probably knew better, Eris listens to Pycelle and sends down word to open the gates. Years later, Jamie Lannister will say that his father intended to be on the winning side of the war, and that after the Battle of the Trident, well, his mind was made up. So as soon as the gates to King's Landing are opened, Tywin's forces start sacking the city. Lannister troops kill the city guards, they kill the small folk, they rob, they rape, they steal. And the whole time, they say that they're doing it in the name of Robert Baratheon. This is the end of the war. There's no coming back from this. And as deluded as he is, Eris knows it. It's only a matter of time before Tywin's army makes its way through the city and up to the Red Keep. So Eris decides to play his nuclear ace in the hole. Months earlier, after the Battle of the Bells, while Rhaegar was busy getting an army together and the rebels were assembling in the north, Eris had started coming to grips with the fact that there was a chance that he might actually lose this war. So he came up with a plan. Nobody knew about it. Just the king, the pyromancers who are always hanging around the court, and Jamie Lannister, who was guarding the king when he put this idea into action. And years later, Jamie will describe exactly what this idea was, saying, quote, He, meaning Eris, saw traitors everywhere, and Varys was always there to point out any he might have missed. So his grace commanded his alchemists to place caches of wildfire all over King's Landing, beneath Baylor's Sept and the hovels of Flea Bottom, under stables and storehouses, at all seven gates, even in the cellars of the Red Keep itself. Everything was done in the utmost secrecy by a handful of master pyromancers. They did not even trust their own acolytes to help. End quote. After hearing that Tywin is sacking the city, Eris tells his latest hand, who at this point is a pyromancer, which is like naming a baker the vice president, but he orders his hand, a man named Rossert, to ignite all the wildfire that's hidden around the city. Nobody, at least nobody that I know of, had ever made, let alone set off, that much wildfire before. Nobody's ever even come close. The devastation would have been incalculable. Not only would it destroy the Red Keep, it would destroy the entire city of King's Landing. Heck, it might even take out the hills that the city's built on, leaving nothing behind but a smoking crater next to the narrow sea. It would give whole new meaning to the phrase, scorched earth. And Eris is well aware of that fact. Before he gives Rossert the order, he refers to Robert and says, quote, 
Let him be king over charred bones and cooked meat. Let him be the king of ashes. It's fitting that the last act of a madman would be to kill a city full of his own citizens. A city that his ancestors built out of nothing. I mean, that's a heck of a spiteful, pyrrhic victory, isn't it? There's just one problem. Jamie Lannister. Out of all seven members of the Kingsguard, he's the only one left in King's Landing. Eris would never let him leave. And he's also the only one who knows what Eris is up to. He's been there, quietly and dutifully guarding Eris' family, while Eris has been talking over these plans with Rossert. And you really have to feel for him, Jamie, that is. I mean, here he is, this young kid, and he really is just a kid. At, at this point, he's 15, maybe, only 16. But all he's ever wanted is to be a knight. And not just a knight, but a great knight. Well, he got that wish, but it was granted in a grotesque, monkey's paw kind of way. He's had to watch his king, the man he's sworn to protect, repeatedly mutilate innocent people. He's had to watch him burn them alive. He's had to watch him torture a child in front of his father. He's had to stand outside the king's bedroom and listen as he brutalizes the queen. He had to listen to her screams. Things got so bad that the white bull pulled him aside and had to remind him that he swore to protect the king, not judge him. Imagine that you spent your whole life wanting to protect people, wanting to serve the realm, and then you find out that the king of that realm, your king, is a monster. Imagine that on top of all that, this monster is about to destroy an entire city and burn hundreds of thousands of innocent people to death. Now imagine you're the only one who knows, and you're 16 years old. What do you do? I have to be honest, I don't know what I would do in that situation. But I know what Jamie Lannister does. He's at the walls of the Red Keep, trying to protect it from his father's forces when he hears that the king and Rossard are alone together in the throne room, and something in him snaps. He realizes, or decides, that he's not the kind of knight that can let an entire city of innocent people be murdered, and he's going to do something about it. Now, on the surface, he and his father don't have a lot in common. But looking at what Jamie does next, I think it's safe to say that they share at least one quality. First, Jamie chases down Rossert, who's literally on his way to set off the wildfire, and kills him. He does this for two reasons. One, because Rossert is clearly just as insane as the king, and will absolutely burn King's Landing to the ground without giving it a second thought. And two, because killing him ensures that he's not able to pass the king's orders along to any of his acolytes. That information is like a deadly virus, and it has to be stopped. In fact, in the coming weeks, Jamie will hunt down and kill all of the pyromancers who knew about the caches of wildfire. But that's still in the future. No need to get ahead of ourselves. After he kills Rossert, Jamie heads to the throne room. And there's Eris, alone, ranting to himself, raving, but tellingly, not acting like someone who's about to be burned to death. Probably because he didn't think he was about to be burned to death. Eris was the latest in a long line of wildcard Targaryens who thought that they were immune to fire, that it was the key to unlocking some innate magical ability. From Eris's point of view, he's not about to die with King's Landing. He's about to be born again as a dragon, a literal dragon. Which, if that were true, you might, well, if not forgive, you might at least understand why Eris would burn down an entire city. But the reality is that the dragons are all gone, and setting yourself on fire isn't going to bring them back. So it's nothing more than a cruel, deranged fantasy. 
but it's one that he's willing to murder hundreds of thousands of innocent people to pursue. And so, before Eris can give the orders to another pyromancer, Jamie walks up, grabs him by the hair, spins him around, and slits his throat. And just like that, Eris Targaryen, the Mad King of Westeros, is dead. No half measures. Now here's where Jamie and his father differ. Instead of accepting that he did what he had to do and moving on without any sort of emotional scarring, killing Eris breaks something in Jamie Lannister. Or rather, it's like whatever good and decent part of his nature drove him to save the city was infected by the king's madness and started to rot. Only much like the madness itself, there wouldn't be any major signs of this, this moral decay for a long time. Its growth is going to be a long, slow process, one that even Jamie won't notice for years to come. But right now, he's just a confused kid, standing over the ruined corpse of a mad king. Now, King's Landing isn't like the Trident. The battle isn't over just because Eris is dead. The problem is Rhaegar's children. Because as long as they're alive and free, there's always a chance that the Loyalists could unite around them. And the person who knows that more than anyone is Tywin Lannister. So he sends two of his, and I use this word in quotes, but two of his best men to get them. The first guy is named Amory Lorch. And he's just your run-of-the-mill sociopathic soldier. But the second guy is someone you'll be hearing about throughout this story. At this point, he's only 18, I think, but he's already starting to make a name for himself. His name is Gregor Clegane. Now, folks, most of the time, I don't see people as purely good or purely evil. I think that's sort of a lazy way to characterize human beings. I think it's more complicated than that. But occasionally, it's the truth. And that's the case here, because Gregor Clegane is an evil human being. He's also a freak of nature, and I mean that literally. He's almost eight feet tall and covered in muscle. I mean, imagine someone who's taller than Andre the Giant, but built like Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's just, he's unbelievable. He's so big that once people see him on a horse, they start calling him the mountain that rides. But of course, none of that makes him evil. No. What makes him evil is, well, he seems to thrive off of making people suffer. More so than Eris, even. I mean, if he's a car, then unspeakable agony is his gasoline. This is a man who rapes, murders, kills almost anyone who crosses his path. For pleasure. Women, children, it's all the same to him. And there are substantial rumors that he murdered his father and then covered it up. And it's a known fact that when he was just a boy, he held his younger brother's face against a lit stove, all because he dared play with one of his toys. Gregor Clegane was alive during a brutal time, where your average soldier could still have a handful of tortures and murders and rapes under his belt, and that was all just considered par for the course, just a regular part of war, and war is hell, right? But even to people who didn't think anything much of that kind of behavior, Gregor Clegane was a man to be feared. He was a magnet for the worst of humanity, and in the years to come, he will surround himself with vile, terrible men. The point is, if ever there was one, then Gregor Clegane was a man who was simply born evil. And he's the one that Tywin sends, along with Amory Lorch, to get Rhaegar's children. The two of them scale the tower that's at the center of Magar's holdfast, which is where Eris had stashed Ilya of Dorne and her children. And once inside, Amory goes to deal with Rhaegar's daughter. 
He finds her hiding under her bed. And then he drags her out and stabs her 50 times with his knife. She was 11 years old. Which leaves Aegon, Rhaegar's infant son and the future king of Westeros. He's with his mother and so young that he's still in swaddling clothes. When Gregor finds them, he takes Aegon and smashes his head against a wall. Then he rapes Elia while her child's brains are all over his hands. And then he kills her, too. Like I said, sometimes evil is the only way to describe someone. While this is happening, Ned Stark arrives at the head of Robert's vanguard. This puts an immediate stop to the sack of King's Landing. Ned is stern, but he's also fair, and he doesn't have any patience for Tywin's form of warfare. While his men are securing the city, Ned storms his way into the throne room, expecting to find Mad King Aerys getting up to God knows what. And instead, he finds Jaime Lannister sitting on the Iron Throne, with the body of the king he was sworn to protect sitting at his feet. Reading about Jaime, I absolutely agree with his actions. But when Ned rides into the throne room, Ned takes things like giving your word and loyalty extremely seriously. And so, even though he was trying to depose Eris himself, he doesn't see Jamie as a hero for killing him. He sees him as a boy who broke all of his vows and murdered his king. He sees him as a criminal. And when word gets out about what Jamie did, the realm will agree, and they'll give him a new name. The Kingslayer. A few days later, Robert arrives. Now, Tywin knows that he's in a dicey spot. After all, he was Eris's hand for 20 years, which means that a rebel army could easily see them as extensions of one another. And while it's true he didn't help Eris during the war, he also didn't help the rebels. He needs to do something to prove exactly where his loyalties lie. So when Robert walks into the throne room, Tywin presents him with the corpses of Rhaegar's children, wrapped in crimson cloaks. Crimson being one of House Lannister's colors. It's a... Well, it's just a brutal way of saying, don't worry, I'm on your side. And Robert is, well, Robert's not happy. I mean, it's hard to be happy when you're presented with the bodies of two innocent children, but it's probably fair to say that he was relieved because he knew just as well as anyone that in order for him to be king, Rhaegar's children had to be taken care of. Years later, Tywin will sum up the situation by saying, quote, we had come late to Robert's cause. It was necessary to demonstrate our loyalty. When I laid those bodies before the throne, no man could doubt that we had forsaken House Targaryen forever. And Robert's relief was palpable. As stupid as he was, even he knew that Rhaegar's children had to die if his throne was ever to be secure. Yet he saw himself as a hero, and heroes do not kill children. End quote. Now, someone who is not relieved by this action is Eddard Stark. In his mind, the Lannisters have committed war crimes, and Ned wants Tywin punished for it. He wants him sent to the Wall for murder. Robert disagrees. Like I mentioned earlier, to Robert, these weren't children. They were monsters waiting to grow up. If one of them had turned out to be as bad as Eris, then their death had saved countless lives. In fact, as far as he's concerned, Tywin did the realm a favor, and Robert's already thinking ahead to what will be done about the, the pregnant queen and young child Eris sent to Dragonstone before King's Landing was sacked. But to Ned? Well, 
Ned helped start this whole rebellion because Eris had tortured and killed innocent people. He's supposed to be one of the good guys. And now he's standing over the mutilated bodies of children while the man he fought to make king is happy about it? That doesn't sit right with him. Wrong way of putting it. Ned is furious. He didn't sign up to murder children. And if Robert won't punish the man who did, well, then he's not the man Ned thought he was. Those are obviously fighting words. And Robert Baratheon was never one to back down from a fight. Uh, Words are exchanged, to put it lightly, and the friendship between Ned and Robert is stretched right to the breaking point. In fact, when Ned eventually storms out of the throne room, people thought that the two of them would never speak again. And that might have been the case, if fate didn't have more tragedy in store. Ned leaves the city and heads south with part of the rebel, I guess now they're the loyalist army, but his first bit of business is to break the siege at Storm's End, which turns out to be a piece of lemon cake. As soon as Mace sees Ned's host approaching, he dips his banners in surrender. A real George S. Patton, that Mace Terrell. The dope. Although, to his credit, by parking his giant army in front of the castle, everyone inside almost starved to death. The only reason that the garrison Robert left behind, the one led by his younger brother Stannis, the only reason they managed to survive is that at the 11th hour, a good-hearted smuggler snuck them some food. Evidently, before that happened, people in the castle were on the verge of eating their dead. From there, Ned leaves his army, gathers six friends together, and heads further south. He's heard that Rhaegar had hidden Lyanna somewhere near Dorne, and he intends to save her. Eventually, he finds her, squirreled away in a red tower in the middle of nowhere. But he's too late. By the time he gets to her, Leanna's laying in a blood-soaked bed, and she dies in his arms minutes after he arrives. Ironically, it's her death that heals his friendship with Robert. Because again, despite all his flaws, Robert cared for her, maybe even loved her. And in their shared grief, whatever problems they had with one another are healed, at least for the time being. Now, if this was a movie, this would be the part where the ending montage starts up, and we get to see what happens to all the major players. Robert is crowned king, and he pardons, well, just about everyone, including Jaime Lannister and Barristan the Bold, who were the only members of the Kingsguard to survive the war. After they're pardoned, they end up becoming the founding members of Robert's new Kingsguard. Ned returns to Winterfell, where his wife, Catelyn, is waiting for him. He arrives with his new son, which must have been a little awkward, as this new son, a bastard named Jon Snow, didn't belong to his new wife. After Lyanna died in his arms, Ned was so overcome with grief that he slept with a wet nurse near Dorne and she got pregnant. It's a little out of character for Ned, but grief will do strange things to a man, won't it? Meanwhile, Tywin returns to Casterly Rock, but not before ensuring that his daughter, Jamie's twin, Cersei, is married to Robert which means Tywin is going to be the grandfather to royalty after all. And at court, John Aaron is named Robert's Hand. And you know, in the next few years, he'll prove to be a similar hand to Tywin, and that he sort of takes over running the country. Not because Robert is busy going insane, but because it turns out that Robert finds running a country to be completely boring, and he'd rather be out drinking and fighting and sleeping with a whole lot of women who aren't his wife. And across the country... People, lords, common folk, everybody starts putting their lives back together, while the singers start thinking up songs about how honorable Robert was, how he single-handedly saved the realm, etc., etc., etc. The rebellion has drawn to a close, and the wounds of war have started scarring over. At the beginning of the last episode, I asked, what would you do if you were responsible for the end of something incredible? And you know... 
I believe in his last moments, Eris didn't really think about it. He didn't consider how his actions had destroyed the Targaryen dynasty, something that it had taken hundreds of years to build, something that could only be started with the help of dragons. I could be wrong. Maybe that's all he thought about as Jamie Lannister's sword slid across his throat. But if I was a betting man, I'd say that at the very end, Aerys Targaryen wasn't thinking about anything. I think his mind was blank with fear. But you could almost ask the same question about Tywin Lannister, because he was also very much present at the end of something incredible. And I don't just mean at the end of the Targaryens. I mean the end of a friendship that lasted a lifetime, a friendship that changed an entire country. I mean, there are a lot of ways to look at this part of the story. You could say that it's about the fall of a dynasty, or the rise of a hero, or maybe it's a story about revenge or glory. You could say that this is entirely Robert Baratheon's story, or Rhaegar Targaryen's, or even Eddard Stark's. But you know, at the end of the day, to me, this is a love story. Or rather, more of a tragedy, really. And, and not between Robert and Lyanna, or Rhaegar and Elia, or anything like that. In a lot of ways, this was the love story of Aerys Targaryen and Tywin Lannister. These guys were best friends since they were kids. They went to war together. They watched each other grow from children into men. Watched each other marry and have children of their own. They ruled a country together. And for the first few years, they did a pretty good job. A great job, even. Because they brought peace to the realm. And like I said earlier, sometimes peace is the only currency that matters. Imagine what it must have been like for Tywin Lannister, standing in the throne room, watching Robert Baratheon as he stood over the bloody remains of his friend's grandchildren. Grandchildren that he had killed. What was he feeling? Was he feeling? Was the Tywin who sacked the reins in that room too, whispering in his ear that it had to be done? That while it was certainly unfortunate, it's simply what happens during war? That this is the consequence of insanity? The price that a king pays for madness? I think that's a very real possibility. But I also think that maybe, just maybe, his heart was broken. Maybe he was thinking back to when he met Eris in that very room and wondering what would happen if the children they were could see the men they would become. I think that just like his son, something in Tywin Lannister died the night that King's Landing fell. Something else that's interesting to me is that the friendship between Eris and Tywin had historical ramifications. And while I want to say that a friendship like that is a rare thing, I'm not so sure that I can. Because as their friendship drew to a bloody, terrible close, the burden of history simply shifted to another one. Eddard Stark and Robert Baratheon, they also changed the world. They lit a country with the fire of rebellion, got rid of a madman, and in the process ended a monarchy that stretched back for hundreds of years. And for years afterwards, they, and most Westerosi, must have thought that they pulled it off without any serious consequences. That even though the Targaryens were gone, the machine they built, which was the country of Westeros, was able to go right along without them. But they'd be wrong. Because the night that Eris died, cracks started forming in the foundations of the country. They were small at first, but they were getting bigger year after year. And they were forming in places that people don't usually look. All they needed was for something to shine a light on them. Sixteen years after Robert's rebellion, that something shows up. And when it does, just like Rhaegar did all those years earlier when he crowned Lyanna Stark the Queen of Love and Beauty, it sets the timer on a bomb. A bomb 
that when it goes off will result in what we know today as the War of the Five Kings. And what exactly is this mysterious something that will rip the mighty country of Westeros apart? The country that has been able to withstand dragons and endless winters and magic and rebellions and insanity and anything else that was ever thrown at it? Well, it's the death of one man. Although death is the wrong word, the right word is murder. Next time on Shadow of the Dragon. You've all heard me talk about Howl Premium before. It's the internet's premier source for excellent audio content. Not only podcasts, but also comedy albums and all sorts of fun, independent projects, such as Hardcore Game of Thrones. In fact, you can find the full season of Hardcore Game of Thrones only on Howl Premium. Go to howl.fm and use the promo code HGOT for your first month free. I'll see you there. Dolly, y'all! This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents! We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que no está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hola, Nesea. Spanish Aki Presents. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.